0: This is a podcast about Jeopardy!
1: Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy! podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy! episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And
0: I'm Kyle. And this is the first week of the 2022 Tournament of Champions, and we have special guest Brian Chang joining us. Woo-hoo! So like to be here, Kyle. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Tell the listeners, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm sure they already know who you are and what you've done
2: in the Jeopardy world, but anything you want to uh, thing you want them to know about you. Sure. Hi, listeners. I'm Brian Chang. I'm an attorney from Chicago, Illinois. I won seven games during my regular season run. Uh, I had the misfortune of facing a young man named Zach Newkirk in my eighth game.
1: Mm. Uh, Zach
2: had been uh, away because of COVID protocols. He wasn't able to fly back out to California uh, until all of a sudden they decided to spring him on me uh, in the middle of my run. And that was a sort of unwelcome surprise. I had a pretty good idea who Zach Newkirk was uh, because on the Jeopardy fan, there was a picture of him below whoever the current champion was. Uh, so I was fairly ahead. horrified uh, to see Zach Newkirk sitting next to me in the studio. And I thought, well, what have I done to deserve this? Mm-hmm. And I realized the answer may be that I told Ken Jennings in my, um, in my very first Final Jeopardy. And so maybe I got what I deserved. But uh, really glad
1: that <laughs> Oh, I... I'm trying to remember.
2: But it was so good. It was... Oh, cool. thanks, Kyle. Yeah, this The what is FedEx right? Oh! Exactly. Yeah. So I did not remember or I, I was not close to being able to answer Final Jeopardy correctly. I was really lucky to have a runaway game in my first game, and I had nothing on the clue. And I thought, well, this might be a fun opportunity to poke a little fun at Ken. So, of course, he had, uh, in his 75th game, he missed a clue about h block, and I think he wrote what is FedEx, Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I trolled him a bit by writing uh, "What is H and R Block" as my final Jeopardy joke answer. Um, <laughs> it's he, so great! He poked it was, right back. To it's a very, like, it's a very inside Jeopardy joke. Mm-hmm. It's a very inside Jeopardy mm-hmm. joke. I was really gratified that what some contestant coordinator or some judge burst out laughing as soon as I started writing it on the pad, and that's when I knew, oh okay. I'm glad someone gets the two <laughs> <reference."
0: laughs> <laughs> So like while the think music was going on you heard them laughing? Correct. Oh that's so great. That's good and <laughs> also <episode. laughs> Oh man. Oh that's, that's so gratifying. Hilarious. That is good to know. Yeah, I mean it was it was classic. And yeah, unfortunate running into Zach because, I mean, as we saw with this, you know, with season 38, it very easily takes a super champion to take down another super champion, because we saw a Mm -hmm. lot of those happen. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, it's been an interesting set of people for this particular TOC, where a lot of people have faced other TOC competitors, not just me. Christine Welchel, Margaret Shelton, and Maureen O'Neill were all consecutive qualifiers for the TOC, who... Mm. Yeah. yeah. And of yeah. course, historically, all three people from a regular season game qualified for this TOC with Matamodio, Jessica Stevens, and Jonathan Fisher.
1: Right, which would not have been possible before the second chance competition. Yeah, right. You can have somebody take down a TOC qualifier, but up until this point, there was not a way to get that third person in there.
0: That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So you are the one here who was there. You were in the room for this for this tournament of champions. I guess
2: my first question
0: is, because there were no wild cards, did you get to watch
2: the games as they were happening? We did. We got to watch from the Wheel of Fortune studio if we hadn't already been called for our game. Mm -hmm. And after our games, we were able to watch from the audience with our friends and family, uh, which was really nice. I'm told, uh, probably for you, Kyle, you were sequestered in Mm -hmm. the Green Room uh, during the other quarterfinals?
0: Well... I was a special case because I was on the first quarterfinal
2: match. Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. So
0: the rest of them were sequestered during my game. And then once that was over, all of us were still uh, separated. We, we, were, we were in the audience, but we were separated from the rest of the audience. We couldn't sit with friends and family because of the potential of wildcard spots,
2: which meant we still weren't allowed to you know, like, interact with anybody. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad there, were, in a sense, that there were no wild cards so that we were able to see everything and still be all together. On the other hand, the considerations for qualifying for the semifinals are very, very different given this new format.
0: Right. Do you have thoughts on that? Do you have feelings about it as one who participated in it?
2: Yeah. Uh, when they announced the format, I was pretty sad about it. I think the the wild cards add a pretty difficult quantitative element to Final Jeopardy wagering, and that tends to be one of my comparative advantages, mm-hmm. I think, in the Road of Jeopardy. And the path just got a lot narrower from quarterfinal to semifinal, yeah. uh, especially in this format where they invited 21 of us instead of the usual 15 um, to compete. Mm-hmm. And three of the semifinal spots were already taken deservedly by Matt, Amy, and Matea. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I will always be in favor of the wild cards Yeah. as a, as a wild card myself. So yeah, I, I understand that. And I, I know how Michael Davies feels about it because he has been very clear about how he feels about it, especially on the Inside Jeopardy podcast. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, there was something special about the wild card with with the Tournament of Champions because it was different. And, and like you said, it's something that's hard to kind of like predict for. It changes your your strategy, or at least it can.
2: Right. It, it rewards a little bit more of the quantitative skill. I guess the flip sure. side is I, I'm really glad that all the four-game winners got to come. Um, as we've seen this week, a lot of the four-game winners are really, really strong. Mm-hmm. And everyone deserved their spot. And if this is the price we have to pay to get them into the tournament on balance, I guess it's worth it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's that's
1: fair. Yeah. I like the expanded pool. Yeah.
2: The, the expanded pool is really good. It's an, it's sort of an unwieldy group for the contestant coordinators to have to deal with, I imagine, <laughs> for <laughs> 21 of us plus uh, two alternates. And so that's a lot of people to shove into the buses and make sure that everyone is in the right place at the right time. Yeah. But they killed it. They did a really good job. I'll say that the the new finals format is a, uh, a huge win from Michael Davies. I'm really, really glad they decided to do it this way. It's incredibly exciting to watch. And you get this interesting metagame dynamic that you don't get in the rest of Jeopardy, where a betting strategy in a particular final game influences betting strategies going forward, hmm. because it's a repeated interaction between the same three contestants. Mm. Yeah. And that's something that we've only seen before in the GOAT tournament. I hope this is the way finals are going to work for the TOC going forward. It's really, really smart and really entertaining. Yeah, Yeah. I
1: hadn't thought about that, how uh, the the new format changes the betting strategy for the finals. And uh, the likelihood that we'll see, I would guess, more second order or beyond wagering.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because that's something that just doesn't, that's something you can't get in Jeopardy.
1: Yeah.
0: Because if someone loses, they're gone, right? The most number of Final Jeopardies that you get against someone is one.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: That's a really good point. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I It had not occurred to me either. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I would agree with that about the finals. I mean, I've said it on the podcast before when they, when they announced the format. I think that's really good for the finals. I think that will result in a... More accurate representation of the best player, mm-hmm. and also it just changes it up and makes it interesting. So
1: yeah, yeah.
2: I think usually in a two-day total point affair, you'll still probably get the best player to win the tournament. Sure, uh, but there's still a lot of variance even in a two-day total point affair. Mm-hmm. In this best of or first person to series, you're really going through the ringer. It, it takes a lot to win in that format. And it's a lot harder for it to just be by chance.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Maybe I don't know. I, maybe you can't tell us this. What were the tape days like? Because obviously for the for the old format, it was easy to do five shows one day, five shows the next day because you knew you had 10 shows. But this one, you have six quarterfinals three semifinals, and then an indeterminate number. Yeah. Well, not indeterminate, but a, a, a range of possibilities for the finals. So how did they split up those tape days?
2: Yeah. So we did our six quarterfinals all in one tape day. And then mm-hmm. they announced we're going to do a seventh quarterfinal. And everyone sort of collectively groaned. It was a really, really long oh. day. Oh, all <laughs> of us had lost our games and thought, well, the last mm-hmm. thing we wanted to do is sit here even longer for a seventh quarterfinal game. But the seventh quarterfinal game is incredibly entertaining. That's the exhibition game, uh, between right. Matt Amodio, uh, Amy Schneider and Mateo Roach. Mm. Uh, and it was very, very clever. I think of, um, of Davies and his team to plan something for election day, where there was going to be a lot of preemption uh, of jeopardy. And this is, a fairly historic tournament of champions with a lot of super champs. Mm -hmm. I think people don't, don't want to miss out on a game that quote unquote counts. Right. So we've got this exhibition as a uh, palate cleanser along the way. Yeah. I I know a lot of listeners are going to have trouble finding it because of preemption, but I really encourage people to go out of their way to find it. It's a really, really entertaining episode. I bet it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we did the seven quarterfinals on day one day two, we did three semifinals followed by the first two games of the final. And then on the third day, we finished however many games we needed before there was a champion in the finals. Okay. Oh. Yikes. That's a uh, that long
1: schedule.
2: <laughs> long days, but really entertaining days. I'll admit that by the end of the finals, I thought, boy, the last thing I want to do is watch another game of Jeopardy. Um, and I never but, thought you know, that would be the case. I've, I've relieved myself of that particular issue by a Now I'm back into the game, but it's a lot of Jeopardy to watch in a very uh, compressed period of time.
0: It is. Um, I I had gotten that feeling after after our TOC, and it wasn't even that intense. You know, kind of just like I've I've had a lot of Jeopardy. I've had a lot Mm -hmm. of Jeopardy, and uh, I could I could take a break. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Um, Cool. Should we start talking about the games? We should probably start talking about the games. Because that's really why we're here. Uh, so, on Monday, October 31st, Halloween, Halloween, we have quarterfinal game one with the contestants Maureen O'Neill, an executive assistant from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Megan Waxpress, an environmental attorney from Berkeley, California, and Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the Jeopardy Round categories are You're the Best Around, Streets of America. Hobby Supplies, Conducting the Historic Job Interview, 90s Films, and From Ear to Fraternity, which will uh, correct response show up between those two in the dictionary.
2: This was a pretty remarkable quarterfinal in that all three of the contestants had previous experience against someone else in the TOC. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ryan Long won 16 games, and he ended up being defeated by Erica Hasek. Megan Waxpress eventually defeated Erica Hasek en route to her uh, six-game win streak. And uh, Maureen O'Neill won four games, and she defeated Margaret Sheldon.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Man, it's a weird season. <laughs> yeah. It really is.
1: I thought all the games this week, I mean, I know they write harder games for the TOC. But there were some really challenging games this week. There were. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So we were all watching this game from the Wheel of Fortune studio, not knowing exactly what to expect in terms of difficulty for the TOC. And it became readily apparent pretty early on that we are not in Kansas anymore. Mm-hmm. I think clues two through seven in this game were all triple stumpers. That's a lot of mm-hmm. triple stumpers to have in a row, but it wasn't a matter of the contestants missing easy things. We were all silent to the wheel of fortune studio, watching it on the monitor. Also these were really, really hard. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is a tournament and it is to me gratifying to see the difficulty step up. Mm-hmm. Cause if it's,
1: not if it's all gettable then it's just a buzzer contest.
0: Exactly. It's just a shootout and it's like, well, that doesn't really, you know, speak to the the level of competition that should be there. Mhm. Though that being said, yes. There were some boards that
2: were like oof. Oof, a doofa, those are hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think I misspoke. Uh, Ryan ended up breaking the curse of the triple stumpers with clue 7. He did. He
0: did with Mary mm-hmm. Baker Eddie, yeah. There was a triple stumper, though, in there that uh, the neg bait was, was, I think, too tempting in the you're the best around at the $1,000 level. The clue is the, quote, best of all possible worlds was a philosophical tenet of this German who advised Peter the Great. And the only way I know that phrase is from Candide. And I was like, well, Voltaire isn't German, so I don't know. But uh, Megan went for it with who is Voltaire,
2: which, of course, Ken pointed out Voltaire did use the phrase in Candide. Mm -hmm. It was Leibniz. And that's exactly the sort of quip i think that makes ken such a great host mm-hmm. for the toc he knows why you got the response wrong he knows the context for it and he's mm-hmm. able to share that with the viewer hey this phrase is really famous from being in candide and that's why megan gave the responsible chair even though he's not german mm-hmm. right. um, and that sort of lets the listener in on sort of the the magic behind the curtain but it also reassures i think the contestant hey ken's on your side he knows everything that's happening he gets it and He wants to help. He wants to explain. Sure. Yeah. On clue six, I remember hearing Ryan's frustration in not being able to recall the name right away. This was uh, conducting the historic job interview for 800, where the clue was, in 1874, you were president of the Freedmen's Bank, and three years later became the first black U.S. marshal. Extensive resume. The response there was Frederick Douglass. I think Ryan was pretty close to getting it, but just couldn't recall the name in the moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's tough when that happens.
2: I do remember him sighing very
0: loudly at that. One. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
1: yeah. Daily double number one comes up as the twenty-first pick at the eight hundred dollar level of Streets of America, and Megan finds this one. She's at sixteen hundred in quite a bit of a lead, actually, um, because we've had such a struggle at the beginning of the round, and she wagers just a thousand. And gets the clue. This man made Salt Lake City's downtown streets wide so a wagon team could turn around without hitting sidewalks or using profanity. And uh, I think it took her a second to pull it, but she got there. It's Brigham Young. Yeah.
0: Big name out here.
1: Yeah. Uh, So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Megan's still in the lead with 3,600. Maureen's at 2,800. Ryan's at 1,400. So he will select first from the categories book sequels, five chances, television. This category is confusing, heavenly bodies and a parliament of vowels, which that category was confusing. I guess not so much confusing as I didn't know the answers.
0: <laughs> it took me a bit to understand the structure of it, uh-huh. like the conceit of it, because you know, on the second pick of the round at the $2,000 level, established in 1905 by Nicholas II, UA, I was like... What? Mm-hmm. What is this asking? I mean, Duma came to mind. I'm pretty sure I talked about the Duma when I did my Czars of Russia yes. deep dive. But I was just like, who knows what this is asking for? What is this asking for?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So wordplay tends to be my safe space uh, category, and I remember watching this from the Wheel of Fortune studio, thinking, "My, I'm really, really glad that this wasn't one of my categories." It felt really, really hard in the moment. Mm-hmm. I think. Among the folks watching remotely, we all got maybe one or two of them, but an entire category of these is, is pretty hard to get.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It was, it was challenging.
1: Yeah, we actually, we did not have a single correct response in the whole category. Oof.
0: Nope. That was a tough one.
1: Yeah. They did great with the, uh, this category is confusing though, mm-hmm. all except the 2000. So which one is really confusing?
2: Yeah, I really liked the clue at at 2000. The clue there was, uh, this word sounds like it means the opposite of addition, but it actually means perplexed. I remember being stuck in the land of subtraction and trying to find some pun off of subtraction, and I didn't Mm -hmm. get there in time. Mm -hmm. But of course, I had the, oh, of course, moment when Ken revealed the response of nonplussed. Right, right. I was really impressed with Megan almost running the heavenly bodies category from top to bottom. Mm, Yeah. There were some really, really good gets there along the way. Yeah, there were. Since we're talking about it, I'll I'll mention
0: the, you know, second daily double it's in there. Uh, It's at the $1,600 level. Megan finds it at pick number 17. She's at 4,800. Ryan's up at 7,000. Maureen's at 6,400. And she wagers 2,000 to try and get back in the mix and gets the clue, the sun's visible surface, which radiates most of its light directly, is called this 11-letter word. Get the picture? And she does not know it. She guesses, what is the illumination? Uh, but that's the photosphere. So she loses 2000 there, but then she picks it up on the next clue, which to me, I don't know. <laughs> I get a little touchy when there are picture clues at like really high-level dollar amounts. They showed a picture of a constellation and said "Shedar, the brightest star in this constellation is one of the two bottom points in its distinct w shape and megan got it with what's cassiopeia i realize not everyone knows their constellations but like i don't know for me it's just they showed a picture of the constellation and the the question is essentially what's this right i thought it was a bit easy for a two thousand dollar clue especially on a board that had been so hard
1: (laughs) you're just still salty about that map clue in your tournament
0: yeah it was like
1: what is this square state
0: Next to Wyoming, I was like, "What?" (laughs) They labeled Wyoming. (laughs) They labeled Wyoming. It's like, like name the state. It's like it was a double
2: Jeopardy in the finals. (laughs) (laughs) To Megan's credit, that's one I I think considerably harder than that. I I had no idea.
1: Yes, I would consider it
0: harder than that. Okay, all right, that's fair. Well, no, I, I agree. It's harder than the what state is this? I'll agree with that. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I mean, we see some missed. High value clues with pictures this week. The sink foil comes sure. to mind. Okay. I would put the picture of the constellation somewhere between the picture of Colorado and, uh, and that. Okay. All right. And we had a missed dog breed picture too, back in the jeopardy round, but I take your point. Okay.
0: All right. I'm just salty.
1: Yeah. Somebody who came on around the time of your TOC was talking about, like, sitting next to you as, like, your head exploded. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Grade. <laughs> yeah, it was Stephen Grade.
0: Because, like, as the clue progressed, it went from, like, very specific knowledge to to that. And I just kind of like,
1: yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Daily Double number three is in a Parliament of Vowels, also at the $1,600 level. And Ryan finds this one. It's the 29th pick. Just $1,200 left on the board after this. And he's in third place with 6,200. He would just 2,000, which if he gets it correct, he will still be in third place. That'll yeah. only bring him up to 8,200 with Maureen at 8,400. And the clue he gets is it moved to Karyat Ben-Gurion in 1966. E.E. And he can't come up with it I knew what they were trying to get at, but I couldn't remember the word. You know, I was like, it starts with a K. It's got a T in there somewhere. Uh, The Knesset.
0: Yeah. It's missing a lot of its letters. Yes. Which I guess is why it's hard. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So Ryan loses 2000 there, but doesn't change the fact that he's in third place.
2: Yeah, the daily double wagering in this round, it's tough. I I think especially for a Parliament of Vowels, that was a category that everyone clearly had trouble with. And I also wouldn't be particularly eager to bet a lot there. Mm -hmm. But I I think at Clue 29, you probably need to at least take a chance at making your way into first. You don't have to do that much to make your way into first. That's just such a huge advantage going into Final Jeopardy. Right. Mm -hmm. It ended up working out in a sense because he got it wrong, but... I think the other alternative there is just to wager $5 and say, this category is awful. And I, I'm not interested in engaging with it to just pull an Arthur Chew there. Mm -hmm. That's fair.
0: That's fair. Yeah. Pull pull an Arthur Chew. (laughs) So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Ryan's at 4,200. Maureen is in second place at 8,400. Megan is in the lead at 9,600. And we get the final jeopardy category places in American history. And the clue a Native American story says this creek got its name from an injury suffered by a Sioux warrior in a fight with the crow. And uh, Ryan, going first, got it correct with what is wounded knee, uh, and he bet everything. So he doubles up to 8,400. Maureen also got it correct with what is wounded knee and wagered everything but a dollar. Which I'm, I guess, I don't know. The distance in scores here is interesting to me for the wagering strategy. Megan got it incorrect. She wrote what is Dakota and wagered 7201, which was a cover bet. As far as betting from second place in this position,
1: you're in a locked tie with third. Yeah. You're expecting Megan to make a pretty big make bet. A cover so, bet. Ryan's your big concern here. Yeah, I
0: don't know if I would have bet 0 or very a small. dollar. I certainly yeah. would have bet probably a dollar cuz it's the same thing as a tie going into if you're in first place mm-hmm. like Yeah, I probably would have bet small here.
2: Yeah, my preference here is the $1 wager rather than the $0 wager to avoid the tiebreaker. We saw two other TOC contestants make a $1 wager here in similar situations during their regular Mm -hmm. runs. Mm -hmm. Matt Amodio wagered $1 when he was in a similar situation against Rowan in their regular season game. Rowan had half of Matt's score going into the final Matt wagered a dollar. It ended up not being necessary to avoid the tiebreak because Rowan got that one wrong. Mm-hmm. But later, Andrew, he ended up beating Molly Carroll by a dollar in an analogous situation where Molly had half of Andrew's score going into final. They both got it right, and Andrew won the game because he had bet the dollar yeah mm-hmm. there's a yeah. case to be made for zero if maureen thinks that she can win the tiebreaker battle um against ryan right i don't really see much of an upside to a larger wager for her here especially because this isn't real money it's not like a normal jeopardy game where you get to take home your total the prize right. is simply advancing
0: um, yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm not
2: sure about the 83.99 there
0: yeah but It ends up working out uh, for her just based on whatever, you know, what other Mm -hmm. people got.
2: So Maureen moves on. I'm really happy for Megan in this round, even though she didn't win. I remember during her regular run, she won several games from second or third place. And there was this sort of perception online that Megan was simply getting lucky and might not have the trivia chops to be able to do well in the TOC. I think Megan proved uh, those doubters wrong in this game by entering Final Jeopardy in first. I, I know that was particularly gratifying for oh, yeah. so I'm really glad that she she sort of showed the haters. Yeah, Good. yeah,
0: absolutely. I, I mean, obviously, the producers put the games together the way they want to try and balance things, but also make things a little bit interesting. But obviously, like going into this game, Ryan Long was the favorite, like statistically. He was clearly, clearly the favorite Mm -hmm. and to go into final jeopardy that far ahead definitely shows, definitely shows where she stacks up. So,
1: yeah. Uh, So that brings us to Tuesday. We have Christine Welchel, a graduate assistant from Spring Hill, Tennessee. Andrew, he, a software developer from San Francisco, California, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida. And our Jeopardy round categories are European happenings, slogans and mottos, crocodile pop, Catch 2022 Plays and Playwrights and Vowelless Hawaiian, which the category title appeared with no vowels.
0: Mm, Fun.
1: I saw that category title come out and I said, oh no, so loud that my kids came in to ask what was wrong. (laughs) 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 Hawaiian is so vowel heavy.
2: (laughs) It is, which is why it's fun
1: category. If it was
0: like Vowelless English, it'd be like, "Eh."
1: Yeah. (laughs)
2: Um, this is another game where all the contestants had previous experience with TOC qualifiers, which is pretty remarkable. Jonathan was an 11-game winner who defeated both Matt Amodio and Jessica Stevens in his first game. Mm-hmm. Andrew, he won five games before facing Amy Schneider in his sixth game. Mm-hmm. And Christine was a four-game winner. She faced uh, Margaret Shelton in her fifth game. Right. This is a really, really tough draw. I think this might be the toughest draw among the quarterfinal games. Jonathan is... Really, really excellent. Um, And Andrew's five game winner doesn't tell the full story of how good he is. His numbers are just insane. He ranks 10th all time in average win total during his regular season run among those with five or more wins. Number 11, he just edges out Sam Kavanaugh, who won last year's TOC. Right. Here's an interesting stat among the folks in the top 10 of uh, average regular season win who won at least five games. Everyone either made the TOC final, has yet to play the TOC, or is named Ken Jennings. Um, And he was so good that he didn't (laughs) get to do a TOC.
0: That's right. I mean, everyone says that they made the ultimate tournament of champions for him. Like, he got a TOC. It just wasn't a regular TOC.
2: He's fine. He's gotten enough. (laughs) He did. And you know what? This was, in a sense, Ken's first TOC, just like the rest of us. So we're <laughs> on, on an equal planet sure. Um sure. I wanted yeah. to share the the origin story of me and Andrew He. So in 2005, I first met Andrew He. I was an RA in a dorm at Stanford, and Andrew was a freshman in that dorm. And we never talked about trivia once, living together. I had no idea that he was into trivia. I don't think he knew that I liked it either. And we happened to audition on the same day for the final round audition in Jeopardy over Zoom. Hmm. Uh, We hadn't seen each other in a few years, and we were just sort of blown away to recognize someone, let alone someone that we knew fairly well. And that was really cool. It was during the height of COVID, we got on the phone immediately after the audition and talked about doing a little bit of prep together to make our way onto Jeopardy. And the fact that both of us were able to qualify uh, for the TSC together was a pretty amazing journey.
1: Yeah, that
0: is that is really, really cool. Small
2: world kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Was he a big troublemaker in the dorm? <laughs>
2: of course. Yeah. He was always in trouble. No. A- and Andrew's always been like the sweetest, best natured, like humble guy. He's always been a genius, of yeah. course. But um mm-hmm. yeah, just fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So Jonathan draws from plays and playwrights first, naturally, given his thespian background. He goes straight to the thousand dollar clue. One thing that I like about this tournament is that I think people are Playing what I regard as correctly to be hunting for daily doubles right away, or at least going to the, mm-hmm. the, the bottom row. Unsurprisingly, Jonathan picks up the correct answer. The clue there was uh, this playwright scene here. They show a picture, which, Kyle, you love. Um, if it's a person that's different, okay. <laughs> fair. I, I'm really bad at identifying people from pictures. I remember during my mm-hmm. regular season run, they showed a picture of Dave Chappelle in the $2,000 mm-hmm. row. And the clue essentially was, who is this comedian who obviously you've heard of? Right. And it was a triple stumper. And I was devastated. I really had hoped that someone else would buzz in before I did. And I could sort of go, ah, shucks, they beat me to it. But Mm no, triple stumper. Mm -hmm. So Jonathan correctly answers the playwright scene there who has written several screenplays, including the most recent adaptation of West Side Story is Tony Kushner. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure giving me a picture of Tony Kushner would help me a whole lot. Yeah, that was like, am I
2: actually
0: supposed to recognize Tony Kushner from his picture?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> like,
0: I recognize his name,
2: but mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I've ever seen that man before. So. Yeah. Andrew then picks up the follow-up. Jonathan continues in the plays and playwrights category. One thing I love about the way Andrew picks clues is if the Daily Double hasn't yet been hit, he takes a second. He stares at the board and tries to suss out where the daily double is going to be. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very important skill. I think Andrew plays a particularly deliberate style that I wish I had the discipline to do. He pauses before answering. He pauses before selecting. He's trying to make the best decision he can in that moment and to take that extra second to do so.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while for me, but I do the complete opposite. I like to stick to a category. <laughs> I like to get the category done. But strategically, I realize that's probably not maximal.
1: Way back when I was prepping, I remember I used to, after the categories came up, but before they started, I would circle the two where I thought the daily doubles were most likely. And I got pretty good at it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It is not fully randomized. No. They like to put the daily doubles in the categories that are more academic i would say definitely not always but often i mean you know my one game didn't work out because kyle was in the middle of a run but i remember planning that my clue selection method was like meat before candy um (laughs) that i (laughs) I needed to like head for the history geography science like whatever because that was where the daily doubles were more likely to be rather than wordplay or pop culture or whatever right I just went to a category I liked and started at the top. I don't know. It worked out for you. (laughs) It worked okay. cannot criticize it. I guess it worked. It worked.
0: I mean, I was more strategic about it in the, in the TOC. I will say that. But first time on, I was like, oh, there are lights and we're on stage.
1: Seeing Andrew kind of slowly and deliberately get through a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I enjoyed.
0: Yeah. It's easy to skip a word without meaning to or change a word without meaning to. So mm-hmm. anytime it's longer than one or two words as a Jeopardy response, you got to be real careful.
1: Mm-hmm. Jonathan ran that crocodile pop category.
0: Yeah. I mean, he knows his pop culture. Mm-hmm. Certainly does. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the European Happenings category at the $400 level. Pick number 12, Christine finds it. She is at negative 400 Jonathan is at 3,400. Andrew's at 5,000. She's way behind. And she wages 1,000 and gets the clue. Switzerland was formed in the 13th century after an alliance of these political divisions formed to combat the Habsburgs. And she doesn't know. She guesses what are counties. But Those are cantons, mm-hmm. which is one of the like two facts that I know about Switzerland. Yeah. I know very little about Switzerland, but apparently they're cantons. So at the end of the Jeopardy round... Jonathan is up to 8,200. Andrew is at 7,600. And Christine is still in the red at negative 1,000. We get the double jeopardy categories art and artists, crossword clues, Q. He directed that. Bridge.
2: I bid. And five hearts. I think one of these categories might be very near and dear to your hearts.
0: Oh. Uh, I think so too. I think perhaps even the $1,200 clue in that category. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we have had a crossword clues cue on our game.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. That's right. With quince in quince,
1: it.
2: Indeed. I thought about that. I was like, huh. wonder if Andrew's a fan of the show. Yeah, they made the clue a little bit easier for the TOC. I pulled up your game, Emily. And for yours, they don't specify that it's a pear like fruit. They just say it's an astringent fruit. Mm-hmm. Here, there's that additional clue that I think makes it considerably easier.
1: Yeah. Truth be told, when I rang in and said quince, I rang in with the word kumquat in my brain, which is not, doesn't have six letters and doesn't start with a Q. So I got myself sorted out before I said anything, thankfully.
2: Very nice audible. Yeah. Also
0: glad you got in before me because I also was trying to buzz in with kumquat (laughs) and I would not have caught that before you said quince (laughs) or before, before I said it, you know, Mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that category. I was like, huh. It's a favorite and then Mm -hmm.
2: astringent fruit. And I was like, well,
0: we know what that is.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Emily and Kyle, I appreciate in your game that they spelled both crosswords and clues with the letter Q rather than the C. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh
0: Uh-huh. You know, that's something that I didn't notice when we were on stage. And I wonder how often those kinds of jokes go over contestants heads. Cause I know it, it for me, at least I was like, just zeroed in on like, Okay let's do this let's play this game Mm
1: -hmm.
2: so but yeah it was a nice nice joke yeah clue number 11 is a tough one for jonathan he finds it at the 1200 hundred dollar level in bridge and the clue there was opened in 1920 the bridge originally named for this avenue helped it become chicago's famous shopping street jonathan buzzes in with what is the magnificent mile which is, of course, a nickname for a section of Michigan Avenue, which is the correct answer. Mm-hmm. But because the name of the avenue itself is not the Magnificent Mile, and the bridge is not part of the Magnificent Mile, Jonathan's ruled incorrectly on this. Tough because Jonathan went to Northwestern for college, which is not too far from uh, Michigan Avenue.
1: Mm, yeah. Oh,
2: did he? I was going to say. Well,
0: I mean, he's you know he's West Coaster, but if he went to Northwestern, then
2: yeah, a little bit yeah. closer
0: to home there. Yeah. Of course, I'm sure you know Michigan Avenue.
2: I do. My office is on Michigan Avenue. Oh, hey, how about that? <laughs> the
1: 1600 in that same category feels almost like a little bit of a gotcha, right? Magdalen Bridge, also called the Great Bridge, crosses this three-letter river in a British university city, right? And you can get to, well, it's got to be Cambridge or Oxford. Mm-hmm. And it was a triple stumper. I didn't figure it out. It's the Cam, right? Cam Bridge. yeah. Yeah.
0: Real, real like slap on the forehead kind of, kind of response.
1: Daily double number two is in the five hearts category at the $2,000 level. And Andrew finds it. It's the 10th pick. He is at 12,000, 2,600 behind Jonathan. And he wagers 5,000. Christine's still trying to get out of the red at this point. Uh, He gets the clue. Here's this basilica. That looms over Paris, uh, and they give a photo of the building in question. He gets it correct; it's Sacré Coeur, which means Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart. So that's how that ties into the category title.
0: I had a moment of thinking, like, if I was on the show, would I try to say the French one? Would I? Would I lean into it? Would I do my French affectation? Sacré Coeur. <laughs> <Sacre-cure. laughs> Probably I would have just said "Sacred Heart" because I wanted mm. to make sure that I didn't accidentally say it wrong in French mm. with my very good French pronunciation. And daily double number three is in the "I bid" category at the eight hundred dollar level. Pick number fourteen, and uh, Andrew finds it. He is in the lead at eighteen thousand six hundred. Jonathan's at fourteen thousand six hundred, and Christine is still in, in the red. And he wagers ten thousand, mm. which. I like. You know, yeah. you're in the
2: lead and but it's close. Go I think it. it's a really clever wager. He's probably not gonna be able to shut Jonathan out, um, even if he were to go all in. But he'll right. he's pretty darn close to a crush game if he gets this mm-hmm. daily double correct. Mm-hmm. If he gets it wrong, he's still above fifty percent of Jonathan's score and he has half the game to catch up.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Which I mean he's already gotten to eighteen thousand. There's no reason to think he can't catch up again. Yeah. Right. He gets the clue, in 2020, an unnamed bidder spent $4.2 million for the so-called Eidmar coin minted by this assassin. And uh, he does not offer a response, but it is Brutus, apparently for labeled with the Ides of March,
2: is what Eidmar stands for.
1: Oh, that's how you were supposed to get it.
2: Andrew does something with Daily Doubles that infuriates me watching him um because i'm just nervous on his behalf he takes a long time to make sure he knows the answer and i think he often knows them immediately but takes that second to deliberate and i thought that's what was happening here that he was just confirming yeah obviously it's brutus let's make sure it's brutus take a second and then i will say brutus and then he doesn't despite me screaming from the wheel of fortune studio andrew say brutus say brutus (laughs) <laughs> um, and my heart just sort of breaks for him in that moment. I thought, oh, boy, the, the dream is over. Yeah. yeah. But
0: there's still plenty of game left. So,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. And he is able to make a decent recovery. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jonathan is in the lead with 19,800. Andrew's at 13,800. It's a little over... Two thirds of Jonathan's total, right? Mm-hmm. Have I got? Yeah, yeah. And
2: I should point out that Jonathan got to nineteen thousand eight hundred off of no daily doubles. That's a really, really Ooh,
1: out. against Andrew and Christine. Yeah, it's very impressive. That is impressive. Nineteen thousand eight hundred is impressive playing against much less uh, impressive players, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is wild. Andrew's at thirteen thousand eight hundred. Christine's at twenty two hundred. And our final Jeopardy! category is Poets. Kyle's favorite. Um, And the clue is inspired by stories from his grandfather. His Battle of Lovell's Pond appeared in the Portland Gazette in 1820 when he was 13. And this one was a triple stumper. Did folks know it in the Wheel of Fortune studio, Brian? No, we threw out a lot of
2: guesses. I think a lot of us went to Thoreau because we fixated on the word pond, even though he's not particularly well known for being a poet. Mm -hmm. The other name that a lot of folks came up with was Holmes, given that, Mm. you know, intergenerationally, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., they're both like big deals. And maybe there's a grandfather in there who's significant. I think Emerson was another name people threw out, but I did not come close to getting this correct.
1: Okay. Mm. This was a tricky one. Uh, Christine tried who is Whitman. Uh, That's not correct. She wagered zero. So she sits pat at 2200. Andrew tried who is Holmes and wagered 1799 which drops him down to 12001. Jonathan tried who is Thoreau and we know that's not correct. He wagered 7801 which is a cover bet which drops him down to 11999 and gives Andrew the win by $2. Yep.
0: Smart wagering. By Andrew. Mm-hmm. And proper wagering by Jonathan. Yep.
2: Your, your good standard wager.
1: All correct. Correct yeah. wagering here, I think. It is. I
2: think this might be a good opportunity for Jonathan to maybe try the strategic wager mm-hmm. for the listeners at home who aren't familiar with shortagey. It's the idea that if you're in uh, first place and second place is within two thirds of you, you have a better chance of actually ducking and making a small wager if you know with relative certainty that second place is going to make their typical wager. Mm -mm. I think Andrew's relatively well known for being good at wagering. So it's, it's really, really tough to do it. But if Jonathan's fairly sure that Andrew's going to bet 1799, then Jonathan can duck himself and then then guarantee a win. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. But then I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, Ooh, man, won't it hurt so bad if we both get it right? and he wagered big and i could have won there's that thought in my mind and also i mean jonathan got it coryat score of 19800 there's no really no reason he shouldn't think that i could get this final jeopardy right
2: yeah jonathan's brilliant and i i certainly don't begrudge him for betting on himself here right there, mm-hmm. there just yeah. aren't that many good opportunities i think to make the strategic wager and i think this might be one of the rare ones mm-hmm. and this sort of harkens back to something i said earlier about the eventual um, finals format where it is a repeated game and if you make a strategic wager in a game of the finals people see that and it's something they have to think about going forward Um, that they need to account Mm. for that sort of second level bet. And then Mm. you start getting into one of those Princess Bride style (laughs) (laughs) arguments. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that brings us to Wednesday
0: uh, when we have the contestants, Margaret Shelton, a homemaker from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Tyler Rode, a director at a startup from New York, New York, and Brian Chang, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois. We have the Jeopardy round categories, historic names, team of the MLB Hall of Famers, you left me five five baroque and the law brian this is your game
2: yeah so i'm a lawyer so gotta start with the law at 1000 and Mm -hmm. i get the clue in 2008 feeding the pigeons at saint mark's square in this city became a no-no that could cost you 700 euro i buzz in first and i say what is rome ken says yes and then instantly says wait no Oh, he did say they cut that from the recording. Ooh. They did. St. Mark's Square, of course, is not in Rome. It's in Venice. And I, in the moment, I thought, if I have heard of something in Italy, it must be in Rome, because I don't know very much about mm-hmm. Italy. And I mm. forgot. <laughs> no, Brian, you know what St. Mark's Square is, because you, you've been to the Venetian Casino in Las Vegas many times, and that's how you know. Mm-hmm. St. Mark's <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so we're not
2: off to the best start. Yeah, Ken made a comment about not covering that in law school. We did not cover where St. Mark's Square is in law school. This category ends up being a little disappointing in that it's not really about the law.
1: Yeah, actual legal content is not super helpful here.
2: Right. Clue four in historic names takes us from bad to worse. The clue there is, in 2018, this poll topped a BBC poll of women who changed the world. I buzz in first and I come up with the most famous Polish woman I know, Margaret Thatcher. Um, Of course, that's incorrect. And the correct (laughs) response is Marie Curie. I mean, it's my fault, but the use of the word pole in the first and second lines of this clue seems a little bit mean. I think Mm -hmm. I fixated on just one usage of the word pole. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I get that.
2: Uh, Clue 14 in historic names is a tough one. It's a picture clue. Um, at a 1,000, the clue there is a 2022 law that makes lynching a federal hate crime is named for this teen who was brutally murdered in 1965. Uh, Margaret buzzes in first and correctly says, who is Emmett Till? I later learned that Margaret grew up in the town where Emmett Till was murdered. Um, so I, I remember noticing when Margaret answered this clue that she said it with this sort of respectful yeah. tone of regret. And that really helped contextualize for me why that was the case.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do remember her having a certain um, mood when she said it too, but also it's a tragic story anyway. Right. Oh, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah.
2: I don't know a whole lot about baseball. I apologize. (laughs) I've never heard of Ron Santo or Frank chance to my fellow Chicagoans. Mm. Um, The only reason I picked up anything in the MLB category was that the name Roberto Clemente happens to be on one of my flashcards Pittsburgh Pirates <laughs> on the other side. Mm-hmm. I'm told nice. that he's actually really famous, but yeah, but for that flashcard, I, I wouldn't have gotten anything in this category.
1: hmm mm-hmm. Nice. Brian, you find the first daily double at the hundred dollars level of the Baroque category. It's the 13th pick.
2: It's fitting because at this point in the game, I am Baroque.
1: Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> You were at zero with Tyler and Margaret tied at 3400 So maximum wager obviously is the right thing to do here. And then the clue was like Caravaggio, Artemisia Gentileschi painted this biblical woman beheading Holofernes. And uh, I thought your guess of Salome was a a good one.
2: Yeah, I had a pretty good idea that it wasn't correct because that's not who Salome is associated with beheading.
1: Yeah, um, she is associated with beheading. So, you know, Yeah, you're heading in, in uh, you know, a reasonable direction. Judith is the response here that they're looking for. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian, you're still at negative 1,000. Tyler and Margaret are tied at 5,400. And our double Jeopardy categories are National, Geographic, 100 cities, 5,000 ideas. Health and Medicine, Simon says... Child actors, novel nurses, and anagrams of each other, which I imagine you were thrilled to see.
2: I was, um, as I mentioned, wordplay is one of my my safe spaces, and so that's where I decide to go to open the round, hoping to pick up a little bit of money before I find a daily double. <laughs> Alas, uh, the first pick of the round was daily double number one, <laughs> <or> number two.
0: <laughs> oh man. Like you just said, you wanted to pick up some money before finding a Daily Double. What was going through your mind then when it, you say anagrams,
2: 2000 and Ken says, and the answer is Daily Double? Yeah, I'm about as unhappy as you can be to find a Daily <laughs> Double. It's, it's always good to find a Daily Double, but Emily, as you pointed out, they're rarely in wordplay categories, and mm-hmm. I, I really wanted the $2,000, and mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be in the form of a Daily Double.
1: Yeah,
0: but you wager 2000 as, well, you should... The clue is a quantity that has both magnitude and direction, and describing secret operations. You got it correct. What are vector and covert? I got to vector, and I was like, "But like, you didn't even give me a chance. You just
2: had it. You you just like had it immediately." I thought that was very impressive. Mm-hmm. So I decided to stay in my safe space to try to get a little bit uh, more money before <laughs> really daily double hunting again. Obviously, there's not going to be a another daily double in anagrams, but I move up to sixteen hundred. Get that one right, and then up to 1200 in anagrams, where the clue was one cherry from a jar and several of the instruments called mouth organs. This was probably my proudest, certainly my proudest moment of the TOC. It was a good one. But probably my best solve overall in my entire Jeopardy career.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so impressive. Um, also, way to pronounce Maraschino. Thank you. You're welcome.
2: Yeah. It's pedantic to pronounce it correctly as maraschino, maybe, (laughs) but it's like the bruschetta bruschetta thing. Like you, you feel Mm -hmm. a little bit like, oh, I'm that guy when I order bruschetta instead of bruschetta. But
1: But like, once you know that the common pronunciation is incorrect, are you going to keep doing it to not be that guy or, you know? Right. Yeah.
2: Um, So the response there, of course, is uh, maraschino and harmonicas. Mm -hmm. Yes. Today I am learning that it's pronounced maraschino.
0: Isn't my face red? Much like a maraschino cherry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Margaret is really impressive in the novel nurses category. She Mm -hmm. runs the category. She's, I think she and Jonathan were the only people to run categories in week one of the TOC. A lot of good guests here. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I am no longer a factor after I got a few of those anagrams and a lot of this content, I just, don't really know. I remember standing on stage at the time thinking, oh, I I think I might be panicking, and I don't like it. As as most people do when they're panicking. (laughs) Right. I've played a lot of practice games, and I I play a lot of poker, and I feel like my tilt control is something that is an advantage for me. And so it was an unusual experience to feel something like panic. But then on a rewatch, I realized, no, you aren't panicking, Brian. You just don't know these things. So in a way that's better, maybe? I don't Mm -hmm. know. I think the height of this moment was in the $400 clue for health and medicine. The clue there is an ectopic pregnancy from the Greek for displaced is called a tubal pregnancy when it occurs here. This is supposed to be the easiest clue in the health and medicine category. It seems really Mm -hmm. hard to me. Margaret buzzes in first and says outside the fallopian tubes she doesn't say what is outside the fallopian tubes and Ken takes a second to rule her incorrect I know nothing about tubal pregnancies and I thought well maybe Margaret was just ruled incorrectly because she forgot to do the what is so I try to snipe it with the what is appended to what Margaret said unfortunately that's not correct and then Tyler comes (laughs) And gives the correct answer, which is inside the fallopian tubes, not outside uh-huh. the fallopian tubes, which is, which is literally the only
1: other place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ken's quip there I thought was good. I could see exactly like your logic, Brian, and was like, oh, right. Like, I, I mean, I saw the pause. Mm-hmm. I knew, I knew that, that inside the fallopian tubes was the correct response, but I totally got where you were coming from. And uh, was like, I would absolutely, if I didn't know and saw somebody miss the phrasing, and then the beat of hesitation before they're ruled incorrect. If I didn't know, I would absolutely just repeat what they said with the correct phrasing and hope for the best.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not, I mean, it's smart. I, mm-hmm. I think usually that's probably a good call. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If
2: Ken did it on purpose, I think that's actually really clever that the timing tells probably shouldn't be giving too much away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's what happened in the moment.
1: Yeah. Daily Double number three is at the $800 level of National Geographic, 100 Cities, 5,000 Ideas, the category title's a mouthful. And Tyler finds this one. It's the 24th pick. Um, He's at 12,600 at this point, 4,000 behind Margaret, and he wagers 4,000 exactly. Uh, And Brian, you're at 3,000 at this point. I imagine in your shoes, I would have been like my heart would be in my throat every time they hit that tie. Right? If you're in third and not competitive, not within range, but the other two keep tying each other, that's kind of your best. I would think that's your, you know, that's your best chance you're like seeing those numbers for sure.
2: I, I'm pretty happy Tyler wagered 4,000. I think it's a little low. Geography isn't one of Tyler's strong suits on Learned League, but mm. I would guess that his daily double percentage conversion is going to be a lot higher than his Final Jeopardy conversion, as it is for most people. Um, so I would think mm-hmm. he'd rather take his shot here than in Final Jeopardy. Yeah.
1: Had you all looked up each other's Learned League stats? Uh, I mean, I'm
2: awful, and I referred Tyler to Learned League for the express purpose of being able to do research on him. <laughs> Ryan's playing 3d chess yeah (laughs)
1: the
0: webs we weave (laughs)
1: good
0: good, my god man oh it's so good and also because i thought he would enjoy it but you
2: know
0: but that's secondary that whatever that's fine if he doesn't
1: it doesn't matter yeah (laughs) this is so great So uh, Tyler Wagers four thousand and gets the clue. You get a good look at this city from a gondola as it climbs the former Ericsson Globe, now renamed Avicii Arena. And he takes a moment, but he gets it correct. It's Stockholm. And so he and Margaret are tied once again.
0: And they trade the last couple, last couple clues, going into final. Brian's at four thousand two hundred. Which is very much alive because Tyler and Margaret are both at 17,400. And as we have talked about with tie games, I mean, you either basically bet everything or nothing, but really
2: betting everything is probably your best shot. Yeah, this was a fun throwback to a game I played against Jack Weller. This was my mm-hmm. fourth game in my regular season run where Jack and I were tied. At 16,800 going into the final, and we both wagered it all to go to a tiebreaker. And I thought, oh, it's interesting to be on the other side of this. but Margaret getting the final clue correct to take her into a tie with Tyler probably took my chances of winning this game from like under one percent to maybe as high as about 20%. Mm-hmm. As you've seen, the the final jeopardies have been pretty tough in the TOC. And the chances of the triple stumper are not that low. So no. I, I'm alive here. And I'm yeah. so happy that I decide I'm going to write my joke answer for Final Jeopardy. I had already planned my joke answer in the moment. And my joke answer was going to be, so you're saying there's a chance? Uh, the, you know, the callback to Dumb <laughs> right. and Dumber. What I wore to the Jeopardy honor ceremony was sort of the uh, the orange tufts inspired by Dumb and Dumber. And oh, I thought it nice. would be like." Mm. A a fun reference. But then something goes wrong and I'm not able to write it.
1: Hmm. Huh.
2: How come? You'd like the pen wouldn't work or? No. um, Why don't we go to the clue?
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, The the final Jeopardy category is phrases in American history. And the clue is Andrew Johnson vetoed a bill that gave reparations to formerly enslaved people. Hence this phrase for an unfulfilled promise.
2: Yeah. So I had already wagered zero dollars. And I thought, okay, it's not important that I get this correct. And I spend about 25 seconds just staring at the clue, thinking, is it just really, really unacceptable for me to say, so you're saying there's a chance about unfulfilled promises to former slaves? And after 25 yeah. seconds of hemming and hawing, I decide, yeah, it's egregiously offensive for you to write that, so don't, <laughs> don't do that. Probably a good call. I
1: think yeah. that was wise. Yep. yep. Good choice. Absolutely.
2: Uh,
0: So Brian, you just, you put a couple question marks. Yep. And like you said, you bet zero. So it's fine. But Tyler and Margaret actually both got it correct. Tyler wrote what is 40 acres and a mule, which I don't know that I've ever heard that used to mean an unfulfilled promise. Like I remember that term, but I don't think, I don't know that I've ever heard it that way, or at least I didn't understand it that way. But it's interesting to know. And Tyler bet everything. So he doubled up to 34, uh, eight. And Margaret
2: also got it correct, but she only wagered 7,000. Yeah, the wagering didn't quite work out for Margaret here. I want to give a little context for this. In the game that she lost to Maureen O'Neill back in January, uh, Margaret was leading going into Final Jeopardy, ended up going all-in, and both she and Maureen missed Final Jeopardy, but Maureen ended up with a higher total because Margaret had gone all-in from first place. Mm Mm-hmm. And after this quarterfinal game, Margaret explained that she knows the phrase is go big or go home, but last time she did go big and then she went home. <laughs> um, and so she was, I think, a little gun shy about making the, sort of the standard all in wager here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. The number that she picked is a little unusual, the $7,000 number, but it sort of accomplishes the same thing as the $0 wager. She's yeah. still got a relative shutout over me. And so on a triple stumper, she's. She's just going to win. So I don't mind her Mm -hmm. assuming Tyler bet it all. Yeah. Right. It's pretty similar to a $0 wager. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It does mean she gives up the chance to go to a tiebreaker though. And she'd been so good on the buzzer in double jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. I saw her wager and I thought, does she think she can't win on a tiebreaker? And then I looked at the box score and her buzzer percent in double jeopardy was, was 68% uh she got in first on 60 percent of the clues she attempted uh to buzz in on
0: yeah i i would be feeling pretty good
2: if i were her but also i was on the couch i was on stage so Mm -hmm. i'm pretty grateful to margaret for not taking it to a tiebreaker because then i just sort of have to stand there like a buffoon while they set up for a tiebreaker
1: (laughs) it takes a while it
2: takes like 20 minutes for them to set up a tiebreaker and i would just be standing there thinking oh boy things things didn't (laughs) it <laughs> didn't work out here. Mm-hmm. Do, would they, do you think they would have let you leave the stage? No. I mean, this is what happened with me and Jack Weller. The, right. the third person just had to stand just... there and really feel bad. Like, I can't think of anywhere I would less want to be than to stand <laughs> while the other two have a tiebreaker. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I guess it makes sense from a continuity perspective that they need the third person there because it's, you know, because then it's going to sure. be the credits you'll want all three. And that the way they edit the show, you know, when it goes to a tiebreaker, it takes all of 30 seconds, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that would be miserable. But great game for all three of you. Well, some tough breaks. For though.
2: for two of them anyway. Th- this <laughs> well, was tough... yeah <laughs> It was a tough board for me. It just wasn't my day. But everything else about the TOC experience other than this particular half hour was really, really cool.
1: Yeah. It was great to see you back and it's just just a rough, rough board. Clearly good players with in your case some bad luck. Yeah. Well thank you. Yeah. So on Thursday, our contestants are John Folkt, a software team lead originally from El Paso, Texas, Rowan Ward, a chart caller writer and editor from Chicago, Illinois, and Courtney Shaw, a community college instructor from Portland, Oregon. And the Jeopardy Round categories are a year ending in two, real deal rhyme time, newspapers and magazines. Objects of Verse, Adverbs, and Film Fight Marquee. And in this category, they provide the year and two actors who are facing off and the contestants are supposed to come up with the movie.
2: I think we all saw Rowan dominate the Second Chance competition in the previous week. I told basically every producer who would listen that Rowan and I do bar trivia regularly together in Chicago in the hopes that they wouldn't tell me with Rowan for the quarterfinal. Uh, Because I know what a beast they are. They're really, really, really good.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that became pretty apparent, like you said, in the second chance. Yeah.
2: Um, so Courtney starts off the round going to Film Fight Marquee for a thousand, which I think is a little bit of an unusual pick. You don't expect to see a daily double in a category like Film Fight. But then I took a look on Learned League. Courtney is much, much stronger at film than both John and Rowan. Surprisingly, it's Rowan's worst category. Hmm, and huh. so maybe Courtney was aware of that comparative advantage. Maybe Courtney's just a film fan, uh, but starts off there, which I thought was very smart.
0: Yeah. Uh, although the first two clues there, the $1,000 and the 800 turn into uh, triple stumpers. The $1,000 was 1990 Sharon Stone versus Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's total recall. And then 800 1978, Bruce Lee versus Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's Game of Death. And uh, I guess this is a chance to shout out that different podcast. But if you listen to Triviality, they will periodically do a Game of Death episode, Hmm. which I'm not going to take the time to explain. But they use sound bites from Game of Death with Bruce Lee and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talking to each other.
2: Which is how I knew that, because I've never seen Game of Death. So thank you, Triviality. It seems in general like John is having a bit of trouble getting in at the beginning of the Jeopardy round, which mm. surprised me. John, Andrew, and I had been matched up for the practice game the previous day, and John was very, very strong on the buzzer.
0: Hmm. yeah, I wonder i don't I mean Rowan is also strong on the buzzer, right, clearly, um yeah. so yeah, I don't know it could could be anything, yeah. Daily Double number one is in the newspapers and magazines category at the eight hundred dollar level. Pick number six, Rowan finds it. They are at eight hundred. Courtney's at negative one thousand, and John is at zero. Not high scores right now, but uh, Rowan wagers a thousand and gets the clue. In two thousand three, this newspaper won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for its coverage of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, and they get it correct with what is the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. Featured in the movie Spotlight.
1: Yes. That was a weird time to live in Massachusetts. I, oh my God. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, everyone's out of the red. Courtney is at 2,400, Rowan is at 3,600, and John is up to 3,000. And we get the double Jeopardy categories Gotta Know Your Science. Starts with J. Biblical people. Get down to business. Name that Balkan nation. And a musical journey with quest love. So video category mm-hmm. read by quest love of the roots.
1: And unlike normal season play, you don't have to think at all. I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't bother to learn how video categories can influence not getting to all the clues, but in a quarterfinals match, they are going to get to all the clues. And if the time goes over, it goes over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, little piece of strategy that is uh it's not the most important thing but you know you can keep it in mind if you're preparing to compete but here it's not relevant
2: john finds his rhythm on the buzzer pretty early on in this round he and rowan trade off i think the first um nine clues with some pretty tough gets in biblical people for both of them were were they tough for you emily i'm gonna guess not
1: um, no, I, I knew all of those cold, but I, I recognize them as somewhat deeper cuts that unlike that, that law category, Brian, right? Like <laughs> we're, we're solidly in the category title says it's about my field. And it, in fact, all these questions were, indeed, were actually, yeah. Yeah. yeah, truly Bible questions.
0: But yeah, they did. And like you said, John seemed to get his groove here mm-hmm. and started to, to make some Make some distance. Yeah. And he just, I mean, this is just his round, really. You look at the graph and it's just pretty much all John after the first, like you said, first nine clues.
1: Yeah. Oh, oh, the graph is wild. Yeah. Daily double number two is at the $2,000 level of Name That Balkan Nation. And uh, John finds this one at the 13th pick. At this point, he's at 13,000 with Rowan at 8,400 and Courtney at 3,200. And he wagers 8,000. It's a bold wager. I like it. Mm -hmm. And gets the clue to resolve a spat with Greece in 2019. It added a direction to its name. And he gets that one correct. It's North Macedonia.
0: Yep. And we get our favorite thing back to back daily doubles. So the next pick, John finds daily double number three and get down to business at 1,200. He has just taken off. So he is up to 21,000 and the other two are still at thirty two thousand and eighty four hundred. and uh, And Ken asks him if he's going to do the same thing, uh, but he just wagers 3000 this time and gets the clue. A New York times article headlined when Mac and cheese and ketchup don't mix concerned the 2015 merger of these two companies. And he also gets that with what are craft and Heinz.
1: Mm-hmm. I liked that clue because I did not know about the news item, but I was able to guess it correctly Mm -hmm. based on what are the kind of quintessential brand names for those two products.
2: And the rest of the round is all John too. John ended up buzzing in first on 15 of the 28 clues in in Double Jeopardy um, Mm -hmm. and and three of those through the remaining thirteen, were triple stumpers. In general, yeah. this was just a very clean game all around. The combined choreot was over forty thousand, or was forty thousand rather. with John responsible mm-hmm. for twenty four thousand two hundred dollars of choreot, which is just insane against Rowan. I've played a lot of practice games against Rowan, and and no one dominates choreot against Rowan like this. Uh, really, yeah. really impressive from John.
1: Yeah, very much so. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, John has a lot game in the Tournament of Champions with Rowan on the stage. He's at 32,000. Rowan is at 10,800. Courtney's at 5,200. And our final Jeopardy category is Novel Locales. And the clue is this place from a 1933 novel lies in the Valley of Blue Moon below a peak called Caracal. And we have a triple stumper. Courtney tried what is the big valley... I don't know the reference, but Ken does. And uh, she wagered 4200 Rowan tried what is Brigadoon. It's not a terrible guess. Mm. With a $399 wager, they dropped down to $10,401. Looking to keep Courtney locked out, I guess. Yeah. And John tried what is Xanadu. Uh, Ken notes that he was heading in the right direction. Uh, it is an Asian paradise. They're looking for... Shangri-La here, though. Mm-hmm. But John didn't wager anything and had a lock, uh, and so that secures his spot.
2: John later quipped on Twitter that he would have gotten Shangri-La, but he had started writing an X, and he really enjoyed the process of writing an X, and so he decided to just finish it and write Xanadu. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. I love Rowan's face when they reveal Brigadoon. Rowan is fully aware that it's not correct, but Rowan's just really enjoys every moment of playing Jeopardy up until the last second and they've got this big smile on their face that makes me think like, I'm glad they had a good time here.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Lots of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Glad they got a chance to, to get into the tournament.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So that brings us to Friday. When we have the contestants, Jackie Kelly, a pension calculation developer from Cary, North Carolina. Jiskaran Singh, a consultant from Plano, Texas. And Erica Hasek, a meteorologist from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, champions of tournaments. South America, a fashionable category. Give us some direction. Dinosaur names and homophones.
2: This is sort of a misleadingly tough draw for the quarterfinals eric only won six games and jackie only won four games but they're both really really good and i think considerably better than their win totals would indicate um, yeah. while jess mm-hmm. won the college tournament and is a giant in the college quiz bowl world who knows a lot jess mm-hmm. was andrew he's dark horse to win the tournament which i think mm. says a lot
0: mm-hmm. yeah
2: for sure at the $1,000 level of give us some direction, the clue there is these three words proceed terrier in the name of the super cute Scottish breed seen here. Jackie's got a really good pull here of West Highland White, uh, which is not a dog that yeah. I've heard of. It's a cute looking dog, but mm-hmm. really, really impressive get from Jackie there.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's a <laughs> that's an obscure breed name. Mm-hmm. Take some deep knowledge there.
1: Yeah. I thought Jaskaran's rebound off of Jackie's incorrect answer in the dinosaur names category. I thought that was a a good moment. This dinosaur was about two feet long and has a name meaning tiny thief. Jackie tried what's Velociraptor. I think remembering that raptor means thief and then I imagine going to a well-known raptor. Jaskaran gets the rebound with what is a Microraptor, which I vaguely remember that that's a dinosaur name. I don't know if he knew the dinosaur name or if he put it together from the root words. Either way, good, good pickup. Mm-hmm.
0: The $1,000 level of homophones. He also got a rebound, which was perhaps a little bit easier to pick up. Uh, the clue is a visual aid following pie and newspaper slang following nut. Eric rang in and said, what is chart? Ken said no. And as Ken said no, or right after Ken said no, Eric said, oh, a graph. But he had already been ruled incorrect. Mm-hmm. So Jaskarin got in and said, what is graph?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Picked up $1,000 there. The $200 clue in Give Us Some Direction gave us a chance to hear Ken pronounce Jolson and Gyeongbokgung in Korean. Of course, <sighs> Ken spent a significant time growing up in Korea, and he sounds like a native Korean speaker to me. Oh.
1: I don't think I knew that about him.
0: I remember that fact. But that's cool that he... That he actually does it well. Like, of course he would. He's Ken, but that's that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Daily double number one is in dinosaur names at the eight hundred dollar level, and Jackie finds it at the eleventh pick. She's at three thousand, tied with Jess Karen, with Eric trailing at twelve hundred, and she makes it a true daily double. Definitely the right move here. And gets the clue because of its longer front legs, this tall dinosaur was given a name meaning arm lizard. There was a picture there as well, and she gets it correct. It is Brachiosaurus. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jackie's in the lead with 6,000. Just at 5,800. Eric at 2,600. And our double Jeopardy categories are history, triple rhyme time, musical instruments, the tangled web, on Broadway and the OED quotes. Mm-hmm. Brian,
2: did you uh did you happen to know the $1600 level of musical instruments? You know I might have. Of course the clue there uh the basset horn is a type of this Mendelssohn wrote a piece for basset horn and regular this and then they play a clip of I, I wish I could identify the piece. Kyle maybe you know it. It's a piece for basset horn and clarinet.
1: Yeah, Thanks I don't know that horn. one.
2: <laughs> yeah. But yep, that was a triple stepper that I I wish I had had in my game. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. It's a basset horn is like it's not a bass clarinet, right? It's is it more like a tenor clarinet? Is that it, It's that very lies? similar to an
2: alto clarinet. I think okay. the basset horn is keyed in F, while a alto clarinet is keyed an in B e, flat. E flat. Okay. Really popular in Mozart's time, not used anymore. Often people will use alto clarinets instead when a piece calls for a basset horn.
0: Okay. Interesting. I've never encountered a need for Basset Horn. So today I learned. Thank you. Yeah. And we had triple rhyme time. I just got to have it. Glad we Mm -hmm. had it in a TLC. It was challenging. I mean, it's always going to be, but they did pretty well with it. Especially, I mean, the $2,000 clue, Uh, a dealer working on commission, selling yellowish tight fitting necklaces. Jackie got an ochre choker broker. I
2: thought that was very impressive. yeah. Jackie's just such a badass throughout the course of this game. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Just answers the questions with no emotion. She She's a fighter. She She's going to very technically soundly go through the board and just dominate.
0: Yeah. Which, looking at the way things are, her Koryat score was 17,400, right? That's a really good one. Yeah. But just like yesterday, we get back to back daily doubles. Mm-hmm. So Eric... Finds daily double number two in the OED quotes at the $1,200 level. At this point, he is at $5,800. at $5,400, and Jackie's at $8,000, and he bets it all. It's pick number seven. It's early in the round. I think that's a great move. He gets a clue. You'll find this 1719 work quoted under Goatskin, Rescue, and Wreck. And he takes a minute, but he gets it
2: with what is Robinson Crusoe. Really good pull here. I think these are not necessarily the words that won Pavlov's to Robinson Crusoe, but really nice pull. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it came to mind for me, but I was not like, oh, yeah, obviously it's this. It was like, eh, it might be this.
1: Yeah, the conceit of the category is a little tricky, too, um, because the, the OED, I've mentioned this on the podcast before right uh sort of traces historically the usage of words and you know will provide quotes here are early instances of this word being used in this way or you know whatever mm-hmm. and so it's like if you know that it may be a little bit helpful but yeah no that's not the first words you think of when you think of robinson crusoe and daily double number three comes right after that in the history category at the 800 hundred dollar level and Eric makes it a true daily double again, Ken. which is um, gutsy. It is such a gutsy move. And it prompts
2: Ken to say, are you kidding
0: me? He did say a- that. Yeah. He said, are you kidding me? And I was like, oh, Ken, you can't ask that. I'm pretty sure that's against the rules. If they say the, the number, that's the number.
1: <laughs> yeah. Was it Roger Craig way back who had the viral like back to back? Yeah. True daily right. doubles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But wow, in the tournament of champions, I love it. All right. Uh, and the clue is, post-World War II, British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan said, this Secretary of State threw a lifeline to sinking men. And Eric gets it correct. It is Marshall, George Marshall, as in the Marshall Plan. Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Eric is up to 26,000. He did not add much to his score after those... Daily doubles. Jackie is up to 19,600 and Jaskaran is at 11,000. Those are, as Ken will say later on in, in Final Jeopardy to Jaskaran, 11,000 is a really good third place score, <laughs> which is not, you know, comforting really.
1: And with no daily doubles, That's it's just right. a raw score. Yep.
0: Yeah. Just really good scores. Uh, we have the Final Jeopardy category World Cities. And the clue the name of this city may come from Durr meaning water, a reference to the Helvetian people's settlement on a lake. Jaskarin gets it correct with what is Zurich and wagers 22.01. Apparently the Helvetians were the ancient Swiss. Mm -hmm. Jackie got the right country, wrong city, and wrote what is Geneva and wagered 64.01. But Eric got it correct with what is Zurich and made a cover bet of 13.201. And so he
2: becomes our fifth semi-finalist. This was sort of a weird Final Jeopardy that played really, really easy for some of the people in the audience and really, really hard for others. Mm -hmm. I think I was probably in Camp 1. Helvetian, of course, refers to the Swiss. And so there aren't that many cities in um, Switzerland. And Zurich just sounds closest to Right. I remember at the time thinking that Jackie is such a good player that... My suspicion was Jackie knew full well that the answer is probably Zurich, and also that she could not win if the answer was Zurich, um, mm. given the state Ooh. of the board. And so took a flyer on Geneva, knowing that it's probably not right, but also mm-hmm. her only path to winning.
0: Interesting. Huh. That's an interesting theory.
2: Yeah, it ended up not being the case. Um, I, <laughs> I talked to Jackie, but if, if anyone could pull that move off, it's Jackie. She thinks mm-hmm. that's strategically mm-hmm. about the game. Wow. That's really impressive Mm -hmm.
0: okay so that's that's the end of this week we have more quarterfinals next week and then the semis so this is our the point in our show where we will take a quick moment to remind you we have a patreon it's patreon.com slash potent potables you can go there to slide us a few bucks a month if you want to help support the podcast and of course we also want to encourage you to well for one this has nothing to do with money but make sure you vote um, mm-hmm. This will come out around election day, so please vote. Uh, and also, we know there are things in this, in our in our country, in our world that are more important than our podcast. So you can support those financially too. Some of the causes that we uh, appreciate, we have put in the show notes, and the one that we have been recently highlighting, and especially feels kind of relevant around this week, uh, is abortionfunds.org. So. Brian has prepared a deep dive and a quiz for us. And uh I'm not gonna not gonna lie and be like, oh, we could guess, because Brian told me what it was,
2: and we ah. talked about it. So Emily, do you want to hazard a guess? Mm,
1: maybe it's Longfellow.
2: Good guess. Uh but no, I ended up sort of becoming obsessed with the painting of Judith uh beheading Holofernes, which was the <laughs> daily double that I uh, missed in the Jeopardy round of my quarterfinal. So for the second consecutive week, we're going to be referencing the Bible. So the story of Judith and Holofernes comes from the Book of Judith, uh, which is it, it's part of the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Old Testaments, but not included in the Hebrew canon and uh, considered apocrypha to uh, Protestants. A really cool book that I didn't know a whole lot about until I started doing this deep dive. It's a relatively short book, and it centers, of course, on the character of Judith, The first few chapters set up a conflict that Judith is going to solve. In the conflict, it involves a fictional king named Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Assyria. Of course, the the famous Nebuchadnezzar II was the king of Babylonia, so I don't think it's supposed to be the same Nebuchadnezzar. But this fake Nebuchadnezzar is fighting a war against some neighboring country, and he sends envoys to other neighboring countries trying to get them to join him in the war. They all say no. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar eventually wins his war, and then he swears revenge on the countries that would not help him. Um, so he orders a general named Holofernes to destroy those who had denied him. The countries beg Nebuchadnezzar for mercy, but he is not all about that. Um, Holofernes prepares for war against Israel with this enormous army. The Israelites become surrounded by the Syrian army, and they encourage one of the city magistrates uh, to surrender the city to Holofernes, knowing that Yeah, they're probably going to become enslaved, but better to be alive and enslaved than uh, just to die at the hands of the Assyrian army. Uh, The city magistrate tells the people, hey, hold out for five days. If God doesn't help us out by then, I will surrender the city to Holophronis. Judith catches wind of this. Judith is a beautiful and pious widow. Her husband left her pretty well with a bunch of gold and silver, some land, uh, some servants, Judith hears about the plan for surrender and she goes to the magistrate and says, hey, guess what? The Lord is going to deliver Israel through me. The the magistrate may be a little bit skeptical, but they agree to let Judith try her plan because these are pretty dire times for the Israelites. Before Judith executes her plan, she says a prayer to God with this pretty awesome line. She says, see their pride and send forth your fury upon their heads. Give me a widow a strong hand to execute my plan. Crush their arrogance by the hand of a female. Pretty metal. Mm-hmm. So Judith washes herself. She dresses herself in festive attire and jewelry. And she goes uh, with her maid to go find the Assyrian patrol that is around their city. The Assyrians are like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, they take her into custody. And she tells the patrol that she was fleeing from the Israelites who are about to surrender and she wants to give Holofernes a report so that he can take possession of the whole country without losing any of his men the patrol marvel at her beauty and they send her down to Holofernes along with her maidservant Holofernes also marvels at judith's beauty tells judith hey thank you for coming don't worry you're safe let me hear your report she gives the report he's happy and he decides to order one of his servants to bring food and drink and that uh, he is going to um, entertain Judith. But his intentions are not so pure. He tells the servant, it would bring shame on us to be with such a woman without enjoying her. If we do not seduce her, she will laugh at us. So Holofernes is not such a good guy, I think. Judith goes to dinner and Holofernes sees her beauty, gets Super drunk and is unable to do anything to untoward before he gets drunk. But Holofernes' servants leave him alone with Judith. Judith is lying in bed. Holofernes is passed out on his bed. And Judith takes the opportunity to grab Holofernes' sword, strike his neck twice, and cut off his head. She hands Holofernes' head to her maid uh, to put into her food bag, and then the two escape home. The next morning, the Assyrian army find their leader decapitated when they were about to go into battle. So they're in shambles, and Israel and its allies attack and destroy the Assyrians. Good job, Judith. The Book of Judith ends with a victory song in which Judith sings, in part, He threatened to burn my territory, put my youths to the sword, dash my infants to the ground, seize my children as plunder, and carry off my virgins as spoil. But the lord almighty thwarted them by the hand of a female not by youths was their champion struck down nor did titans bring him low nor did tall giants attack him but judith the daughter of merari by the beauty of her face brought him down her sandals ravished his eyes her beauty captured his mind the sword cut through his neck this is the song that judith makes up about herself it's a pretty mm-hmm. cool song. I wish, yeah. I, yeah. one day maybe I'll write a song half as cool as that about myself. But <laughs> really neat story, and you can tell why uh, the story of Judith and Holofernes is the subject of so much art. So that brings us to the particular artist who painted the question referenced in the Daily Double. Her name is uh, Artemisia Gentileschi. Uh, she was born in Rome in 1593, the eldest child of a relatively famous painter named uh, Orazio Gentileschi. Artemisia's mother died when she was 12, and so she was raised primarily by her father, who introduced her to painting. Artemisia did pretty well for herself. Uh, The Medicis became her patrons, and she was a a well-known artist by any standards of the time, all the more remarkable because she's a female artist at a time when female artists were not particularly valued. She was also noteworthy in that most of her female contemporary painters at the time preferred doing things like still lifes and uh, landscapes, while Artemisia tackled historical paintings, uh, paintings with biblical themes, which put her in more direct competition with male artists. And those were the folks against whom she was judged. And she certainly more than held her own and is probably one of the best known Baroque artists today. Artemisia Gentileschi painted two versions of Judith slaying Holofernes. She's not the first artist to tackle the story of Judith and Holofernes. Back in 1470, Botticelli painted something called The Return of Judith to Bethulia. That painting's got Judith's maidservant carrying Holofernes' head as the two of them make their way home. Later in the early 1500s, Michelangelo painted Judith carrying away the head of Holofernes in the Sistine Chapel. But neither of those works picture the actual beheading of Holofernes. They just show someone carrying Holofernes' head away. Uh, The first painter to really graphically depict the actual beheading of Holofernes was Caravaggio, who happened to be a friend of uh, Artemisia Gentileschi's father, Orazio. And he painted a a work of Judith beheading Holofernes around 1598. It's pretty graphic. Judith is holding Holofernes' hair with her left hand and is in the process of decapitating Holofernes with a sword in her right hand. Uh, there's blood spewing from Holofernes' neck, but it's almost cartoonish blood. It doesn't look like an actual blood spray. You see Judith at the side, and her, her face is a little bit disgusted at the task of having to behead this bad guy. Judith's maidservant is even farther removed from the center of the painting. She's way off to the side. She's a very old woman, um, and it looks like she's ready to catch the head once it falls off. But she's not really involved in the process of actually beheading. Gentileschi's first version of uh, Judith uh, beheading Holofernes was painted around 1612. It's got some similarities to Caravaggio's version. Like that version, it's a scene of Judith actively engaging in the act of beheading Holofernes. The hand positions are very similar. Judith is holding Holofernes' hair with her left hand and a sword in her right hand. But that's sort of where the similarities end. Caravaggio's Judith looks sort of disgusted at having to do the decapitation, but Artemisia Gentileschi's Judith is kind of into it. She's got like a hint of a smile on her face, this sort of calm Mona Lisa-like expression of contentment, knowing, hey, this is what it's going to take for me to deliver my people from the Assyrian army, and and good for me, and I'm kind of happy to do it. The servant plays a much more central role in Gentileschi's version. The Caravaggio servant is old and off to the side. Uh, Gentileschi's version depicts a much younger servant who's an active participant in the decapitation. She's holding down Holofernes with both arms, straining to do so. And a lot of art critics have interpreted this as an act of feminist solidarity uh, between Judith and her maid, the two of them working together mm-hmm. to to assassinate this uh, this tyrant who's threatening the lives of, of their uh, civilization. The Medicis commissioned a second version of the painting a few years later. It's similar, but with a few additions that make it even more noteworthy. The sword sort of moves from the side of the painting to the center of the painting, almost vertical, right in the center. And so it draws the viewer's eye immediately as a pretty violent focal point. There's a lot more blood spray in the second version than in the first version. And unlike the Caravaggio blood spray, it looks very realistic. You've got this sort of awesome, gruesome murder depicted. And it's relatively unusual for the time for for women to be painting historical paintings at all, let alone something so graphic and so violent. In the second version, Gentileschi adds an embellishment to the arm of Judith. He adds a bracelet, and if you zoom in on the bracelet, you can see that it features the goddess Artemis. And so that brings us to one of the most interesting aspects of the painting, Uh, which draws from an experience that Artemisia Gentileschi went through. Uh, Before telling the story, I just wanted to give listeners a heads up that the story contains uh, some potential triggers around sexual assault and rape, so um, proceed accordingly. So Artemisia's father, Orazio, recognized Artemisia's talents at a relatively early age, and he hired a uh, business associate to tutor her. That guy's name was uh, Agostino Tassi. This wasn't a particularly good choice as a tutor. He was a relatively well-known painter, but he had previously been accused of raping his sister-in-law and one of his wives. That wife had gone missing, and there was a relatively wide-held belief that Tassi had paid uh, to have her killed. So in the year 1611, Tassi, as the tutor of Artemisia, went over to the Gentileschi home. Uh, When he was alone with Artemisia, he raped her. At the time he was 33 years old, she was only 17. Relatively incredibly for the time, Tassi was actually taken to trial over the rape. The charges weren't brought until nine months after the rape. And the underlying reason is that Tassi had promised to marry Artemisia, but then reneged. And that's when Artemisia's father uh, decided to press charges. The trial lasted seven months, and we're relatively lucky looking at it from a historical perspective because there's a 300-page transcript of the trial that still survives today. We now know that Artemisia had to go through a particularly cruel form of torture during the trial. She was tortured by thumbscrews. Those are a mechanism to crush someone's thumbnails by slowly applying pressure on them. And at the time, that was thought of as a form of lie detector, that if someone is going through such intense pain, they will tell the truth. <sighs> Tassi was, ended up being found guilty of rape, which is really, really re- remarkable for the time. Yeah. He was yeah. sentenced to two years imprisonment, although he was released after eight months. So remember, the assault happened in 1611, and the first version of the painting of Judas slaying Holofernes uh, was painted around 1612. Um, So that gives you a little bit of context for the relative proximity of time between the assault and the painting itself. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So it's widely believed that both versions of Gentileschi's painting depict Tassi as Holofernes and Artemisia as Judith. In the second version of the painting, Artemisia really hammers this home by including that bracelet with images of the goddess Artemis with, you know, the obvious parallels between Artemis and Artemisia. Mm-hmm. So that's a dive into Artemisia Gentileschi and the story of Judith beheading Holofernes. I wasn't really familiar oh. with much of Gentileschi's work before doing this research, but she's become one of my favorite artists. A total of 49 out of Gentileschi's 57 paintings feature female protagonists. Uh, many of them draw from the Bible, such as paintings of Mary Magdalene, Samson and Delilah, and uh, David and Bathsheba. So check out her work if you're not familiar with it. It's pretty badass. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's. Oh, she's she's super cool. Yeah.
2: Well.
0: Thank you. That is certainly a lot more than I knew,
1: yeah, this was great. I'd heard a little bit about uh, about her paintings of Judith and Holofernes, which I'm pretty sure I mispronounced back when we were recapping. but i it was I, I really appreciated getting kind of the full narrative and the and the context. Um, so thank you, yeah, of course.
2: Yeah. are we ready for a quiz? Oh, uh, yes, yeah. always. All right, today's quiz is uh, going to be about beheading everyone's favorite subject beheading yay, all right for ten points in the Wednesday quarterfinal, this very handsome idiot conflated Judith with Salome, uh, who's another biblical character who requests someone's head be brought to her on a platter in the book of Matthew. for ten points, whose head does she request?
1: Uh, okay. I'm locked in.
2: yeah, me too. uh you go ahead
1: it's John the Baptist it
2: is John the Baptist very good 10 points to both of you all right question two this son of Zeus beheaded the Gorgon Medusa using the sword that Hephaestus had given him okay I'm good
1: I've got mine locked in as well you go ahead
2: uh, that is Perseus
1: Perseus is my guess as well
2: oh, too good all right tied to 20 question three on route to the guillotine, Sydney Carton says it's a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go than I have ever known. That's the closing line of this 1859
1: novel. Uh yes. A Tale of Two Cities.
2: Tale of Two Cities. It is a Tale of Two Cities. Alright, we're tied at 30. Maybe I should have made these harder. No, these are good. I like them.
1: I'm feeling like I'm full of full of facts. I like yeah. that.
2: <laughs> You're nailing it. Uh, question four for 10 points. This man ruled as a virtual dictator during the French reign of terror from 1793 to 1794 before he lost his own head. Okay.
1: Oh my gosh. I know exactly who you mean and his name isn't coming to me. Oh no. Oh. All right. Okay. I think I've got it. Robespierre is the name that came to me.
2: Yeah. Maximilian Robespierre. Ah, It is. It is Robespierre. All right. We're tied at 40. Question five. The Headless Horseman figures prominently in this short story by American author Washington Irving. Okay.
1: I've got mine.
0: The Legend of Sleepy Hollow.
1: That is my guess as well.
0: All right. We're tied at 50 going into which the do.
1: final round.
0: Emily lives next to Sleepy Hollow or whatever. I do. Yeah,
1: I live. I live. Uh, if you go north from where I am, you hit Dobbs Ferry. I can walk to Dobbs Ferry. I can walk to Irvington, which has changed its name to Irvington because of Washington Irving. And then uh, one more town north of there. No, two more. Terrytown and then Sleepy Hollow.
2: Nice. I should have known that Irvington All came right. from Washington Irving. Fun fact. All right, our final category today is the 16th century.
0: Well, we're going in in a tie, and there are only two <laughs> possible correct choices, so that's yeah. um, yeah. what I hear.
1: Mm-hmm. I
2: mean, I'm going to bet it all. I will also bet it all. All right, I don't have a tiebreaker ready, but maybe I will come up with one. <laughs> uh, we don't need a tiebreaker. <laughs> really, that's fine, we can tie. <laughs> all right, your final clue today. Among Henry VIII's six wives,
1: two of them were beheaded. Name them both. Um, okay, all right. I'm writing down the wives of Henry VIII. Yeah, me too. uh, uh, I'm not 100% sure I've got the right two, but I've got my two.
0: Oh, the ones in the middle, I even
1: you did a deep dive on this the, week that, on this. the week that I went to C six and neither of And I'm,
0: it's because I like I'm pretty sure. Okay, I know. I mean, I know one for <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I can't. I can't remember if it ends, or if they're separated. Okay, I I have my two that I'll go with. All right. Okay, so we agree on Anne Boleyn. I assume.
1: Yep, Anne Boleyn, and my 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 other guess is Catherine Howard.
0: Myan was also Catherine Howard, so
2: we'll we'll sink or s- swim together. Of course, the mnemonic is divorced, beheaded, died, divorce, divorced, beheaded, survived. Anne Boleyn was the second wife, and Catherine Howard was the fifth wife. They were the two who were divorced. Yes. So we are tied at a hundred points. I'm afraid I don't have a tiebreaker for you, <laughs> but that's okay. This is in jeopardy. Two people are allowed to win. That's right. Nice. And we this all win.
1: Great. Um, I, it is a pet peeve of mine. I mean, divorce, divorced, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived is great. Three of these people are named Catherine, and that's what you need a mnemonic for. Yeah. You know?
2: There's a mnemonic for the last names. The mnemonic, I think, is um, all boys should come home, please, which is not super... Oh. Um, It doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way, but that's the mnemonic for Aragon, Boleyn, Seymour, Cleaves, Howard Yeah, That's a good one to remember, yeah.
1: I'm filing it away. I don't think I'll ever miss that again. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being with us. This was so delightful. And uh, it was really, really great to get your insight into the Tournament of Champions in general and your game in particular. And uh, sorry, your game didn't go the way you were hoping, but it was great to see you back on the stage and great to have you with us.
2: Well, thanks so much. It it was such a blast doing this. Um, And of course, getting to play in the Tournament of Champions was the like the honor of a lifetime. I'm really jealous because I I know how the rest of it goes, but you don't. And there's a lot of (laughs) really, really good Jeopardy coming up.
1: Um, so stay tuned
2: for the next uh, couple of weeks. You're, you're in for a treat.
1: That is not surprising, but it is good to hear it nonetheless. And uh, let me say a thank you to our listeners as well. Thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review. If you could, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potent potables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast.
0: Uh, you can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at potentpotables One. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. Uh, so until next week, when we will be back with the second week of the Tournament of Champions, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.